0: Watcher This week's podcast is once again sponsored by the brilliant NextUpcomedy.com, a comedy streaming platform with so so many brilliant comedians and their hour specials on it, and then there's also me ruining it with my last three shows. Sorry. It's only four hundred ninety nine a month, but you get the first month free if you sign up at nextupcomedy.com forward slash tin and is great. No, I didn't choose the URL. It chose me. <clears throat> anyway, get on board to laugh your way through the tears of the election results and why Netflix and chill when you can, um, next up and g- gig Uh, yeah, that's why very few places will let me write the adverts for them.
1: Hmm.
0: <laughs> Hello and welcome
1: to the Partly Political Broadcast, the Comedy Politics Podcast. This is episode 167 and I'm Brian, Tiernan's dad. As he said, he was too busy
0: to appear on this week's show, so he said he wanted to be prime ministerial and send me instead. I have no idea what he's doing, but when I texted him, Tiernan said it was all the other podcasts' fault, and they didn't want him there, and then he spelt Pinocchio wrong five times in a row, which I didn't
1: understand at all.
0: Thanks, Dad, but I'll take over from here as this bit's easier. After a horrific terrorist attack in London, Prime Minister and the great twatsby Boris Johnson has said a vote for him will keep Britain safe. Oh, yeah? How are you going to do that? Are you going to get your dad to deal with it while you insist on only doing the easier morning Cobra meetings without any of the hard questions? It's amazing how much you can learn about someone in a week of election campaigning. In just seven days, for example, we've learned that the Prime Minister has multiple levels of daddy issues, that the leader of the opposition and bearded twiglet Jeremy Corbyn doesn't easily say sorry, which means he can't really represent British people, and that preserving marine life and correct use of safety products comes second in priorities to fighting off terrorism with a narwhal tusk and a fire extinguisher. Yes, very sadly, it's another election that has been marred by a violent incident in London Bridge where two young people were very tragically killed and the attacker was stopped by a Polish chef with a whale tooth, a man using foam as a weapon and a convicted murderer on day release, among others. In the sort of story that can only have caused temporary embolisms for all the staff at most right-wing papers as all their hatreds collide against themselves in the kind of tale you'd usually expect to be directed by James Gunn. Why anyone would think it's worth wreaking terror on a country that's currently very successfully destroying itself is beyond me. But it has raised a lot of questions on account of the attacker being a convicted terrorist who is in the middle of a rehabilitation programme. One of these questions is, when is it okay to politicise a horrific event that is, in its nature, inherently political? Is it when the governing party blames it entirely on the previous government of over nine years ago and calls for tougher sentencing in a way that means they won't actually change anything, as we already have that, and the biggest problem is that their party has made so many cuts and made rehabilitation so shit that they've actually had to re-nationalise it, which is up there with things that conservatives hate doing most after shaking hands with working-class people and, in Johnson's case, actually seeing his kids? Is it when one of the victims is named as Jack Merritt, a very inspirational man who is trying to improve the lives of prisoners, and his father said that he would not wish his death to be used as the pretext for more draconian sentences or for detaining people unnecessarily, and then several newspapers and the Conservatives do exactly that because, as always, they care more about respecting the wishes of the nearly dead but still able to vote far more. Or is it when all the parties said they'd halt campaigning out of respect for the victims but still did all the telly shows and debates when they all talked about it lots and got all their facts about the state of the prison system wrong and Michael Gove did an event in Woking? Though I suppose at least that way everyone knew he'd be at the event in Woking instead of concerning an already shaken nation by the possibility of him turning up somewhere else near them, looking like if a seven appendix was held out of a car window on the motorway, so maybe it's for the best. Another question is, what use is Trident or anti-terror squads when perhaps we should be investing in farming narwhals for murderers to ride around on with buckets of sand? The week began with the Chief Rabbi and what if Dave Myers from the Hairy Bikers got serious, Ephraim Mervis, saying that Jeremy Corbyn had allowed a poison sanctioned from the top to take root in Labour. I assume he meant sanctioned as in it was allowed, not as in it was penalised by the leader. But maybe it was the latter and we've all just been reading it in very much the wrong tone of voice all along. Mervis, who's the spiritual leader of 62 Orthodox synagogues, said the soul of the nation is at stake, though I'd say that's debatable as some people prefer other pie fillings. And that the Labour Party Party's leadership anti Semitism was incompatible with British values, which is a very serious comment for him to make, and one that sadly perhaps underestimates just how racist British values generally are. Of course, some British Jewish people have stood up for Labour, while the Muslim Council of Britain made a statement about the rife Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, and then the Hindu Council said actually Labour were also anti Hindu because they always speak out against Islamophobia, but then they criticised populist Santa Narendra Modi, and the Buddhists didn't release any statement, presumably because they're having to work really hard to stay calm right now. During an interview on Tuesday evening with Fungus the bogeyman wears a toupee, Andrew Neal, Jeremy Corbyn said several times that anti-Semitism was unacceptable and should not be happening within his party or at all, but he wouldn't actually say sorry to the British Jewish community. If sorry seems to be the hardest word, then why has he apologised for Labour's approach to dealing with anti-Semitism at least four times before, but then couldn't do it live on TV during an important election campaign? Why has he campaigned to protect Jewish cemeteries, defended the dad of political millhouse Ed Miliband from anti-Semitism? Semitic attacks, and back in 2015, challenged then Prime Minister and that one sock in the back of the machine that you missed, David Cameron, to do more to tackle it, and yet he couldn't just say sorry on the telly. Or at least soz, or my bad, or if he really doesn't mean it, cross his fingers behind his back while he does it. Or were all Corbyn's previous efforts to tackle anti Semitism just to make people think he did care and then it really smarts when he lands the no sorry blow? Or has he just realised that sorry is political dynamite in today's vicious world, where apologising will mean everyone says you're weak, have caved in and admitted your faults, whereas not apologising means everyone thinks you're racist, not very good at interviews, weak, have caved in and won't admit your faults? Luckily for Labour, just as this story dominated the news and everyone on Twitter told everyone else they were wrong, the Conservatives leapt on it, with Johnson insisting that any Conservative members who express Islamophobia will be out first bounce, but forgetting that this can't be true on account of him still being there and it charge. Aside from the infamous letterbox comments, Johnson also said back in 2005 that it's natural to be scared of Islam, which I don't think it is as babies aren't born and then immediately start screaming about the consequences of religion. Though, to be fair, they do often start screaming and we aren't entirely sure what it's about but look, I'm fairly certain it isn't misconceptions about the differences between halal and the way everyone else slaughters animals but with a different prayer. In the midst of this, Michael Gove responded to Stormzy backing Labour by saying he's a far far better rapper than political analyst which is quite something from a man that shit at everything except looking like a sea urchin in glasses. Which is not dissimilar to what Shadow Secretary of Education and Catherine Tate character Angela Rayner tweeted at him, to which Gove replied with a Stormzy lyric but when tweeted by him just appeared to be a terrible judgement in cultural misappropriation of the kind that only white men of a certain age do when reggae comes on the radio or they haven't realised that everyone knows Jim Davidson is racist. And if Gove had just listened to the rest of the track, he might have learned instead to shut up. Then-chancellor and emoji model Sajid Javid refused to say seven times whether he would use the term bank robber or letterboxes to describe women in burkas like Johnson did last year. Which is impressive, as I'd have given up asking him after the first time, because you should know that as a chancellor for the Conservatives and a former banker, he's all about the diminishing returns. This prompted many people to dig up a whole load of Johnson's old articles from when he was a journalist in occupation as well as in spirit, and in them he was racist, classist and sexist, making for a full whammy of shitholering. Did the Chief Rabbi think Labour's anti-Semitism made them incompatible with British values? Because actually, as the polls still show, what the Brits really want across the board is a wider range of outdated and dangerous views. On Wednesday, Labour unveiled 451 pages of documentation that they said showed the NHS hadn't been taken off the table for trade deals with the US, Corbyn holding up several pages of blacked-out redacted line after redacted line like Change UK had sent him their life story, only with more than two pages. What they actually showed was several meetings between US trade officials and UK civil servants and for some reason the useless husk that his disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox, who would probably just popped along so he could bring his pal Adam and have a week away. A US-run National Health Service would be awful, not least because it would be called a National Health Rest Stop, but also because we'd all be given opioids and Xanax for everything, which would mean we were either ignorantly happy or confused and dopey all the time and... Oh wait, probably not that different then. No, I mean it would be terrible and according to these documents medicine costs would rise, which means I need to stockpile insulin ASAP. Not just because of a no deal or not being able to afford it myself, but when everything goes tits up under a Tory majority because the public are terrible, then I want to get some Benjamins dealing Nova Rapid on the corner. The Conservatives defended the report by saying the NHS is not on the table, which might mean it's under it in a brown envelope, and that in the documents it's only mentioned four times, as if proving them not even bringing it up that much shows they care. I'm sure Johnson thinks he's a great dad because he only remembers his kids' names a few times a year when telling his aides which numbers to block on his phone. But rather than push Johnson on these NHS plans, instead the big coverage was on how he filled his scone whilst in Cornwall, because apparently that's what matters, despite very few people outside of the South West giving the remotest of fucks. Is it going to be jam first, or cream first, or is he just going to stick his knob in it and screw it like everything else he does? Or maybe he'll do one one way and the other the other, and then bring out whichever way wins. Or maybe he'll just say that he always wanted to be the king of scones when he was at school, while everyone conveniently forgets that article he wrote comparing cream teas to pulp. Hot. The media coverage of Johnson has been under scrutiny, particularly from the BBC as not only did they promote the Prime Minister's every man campaigning if every man was a gluttonous fuckwit who assumes condiment assembly is more important than race relations and public healthcare, but after Corbyn's shit show with Andrew Neil, it turned out that Johnson hadn't actually agreed to an interview with the Troll Hunter, despite the Labour leader being told that he had. And that might breach all those perda rules if Johnson isn't also going to get sat down and repeatedly asked how often he needs his trousers doused for flames. Johnson also also didn't want to turn up to Channel 4's debate on climate change, meaning that not only were they helping the others avoid unnecessary toxic emissions, but also both Johnson and Brexit party leader and felch accident, Nigel Farage, were replaced with melting ice sculptures. At first, it would have been easy for viewers to realise the difference, as instead of those morons, there were two cool and composed figures that didn't say anything autal but calmly drip-fed the audience watered-down ideas. But by the end of the show, it was much the same as if Farage and Johnson had been there, as it was just two massive wet melts. This was arguably the most important debate, as you know, the world is on fire, and the Conservatives aren't doing or pledging enough to tackle it, so it'll come as no surprise that instead of Johnson, his dad, and exactly the sort of person who'd make a joke about how he identifies as a car or something, Stanley Johnson, and old walking discharge Michael Gove again, turned up unannounced with a film crew to demand that they do it, even though it was a leaders' debate. Johnson's senior, in more ways than one, said that Gove could do a leaders' debate as he was a leader, which he isn't, and they wanted the leader. Though maybe people let him leave because if Gove's behind them, he'll stab them in the back. Channel 4 were derided for not letting a Conservative do it, even though Johnson had turned it down. It was a leaders' debate, and Gove and Bojo Dado hadn't told them they were coming, so it's clearly all a charade. Instead, there were thinly veiled threats about reviewing Channel 4's license, and it was all the other leaders' faults as they didn't want Johnson there. Sure, no one wants Johnson anywhere, and a large hunk of ice wetting itself in studio lights is better than a large chunk of offal shitting itself in studio lights, but it still doesn't ring true. But we can learn from this. Maybe any other debates Johnson does, none of the other leaders show up, and instead it's all just their relatives, because nothing will have more impact than someone's aunt telling him he's a lying shitrag. Either that, or all channels should just interview various pretend Borises, ranging from actors in wigs to collapsed sandbags in wigs, and when the Prime Minister complains, they can just say they didn't know they wanted THE Boris Johnson, so they got A Boris Johnson. Stanley managed to cause his own controversy by responding to a viewer calling his son Pinocchio by saying that the British public couldn't spell that word, which not only shows his contempt for people in general, but also means he's so out of touch he's unaware of the popularity of a film that's been out since 1940. Then again, he probably only ever read his children a version of the story where Pinocchio starts out as a real boy, but then gets sent to boarding school where he has all the humanity beaten out of him. According to Stanley, his son was too busy to do the Channel 4 debate, but he didn't know doing what. And the same excuse was played for an Andrew Neil interview. According to Stanley Johnson, his son was too busy to do the Channel 4 debate, but he didn't know doing what. And the same excuse was played as to why he couldn't attend an Andrew Neil interview. However, Johnson wasn't too busy to do the Andrew Marr show on Sunday, hosted by Andrew Marr, who's a man who always looks like he was composed using a bit shaved off of another larger person. Basically, Johnson was busy for Neil, but not for Ma. in the same way I definitely don't have any time to do a skydive, but I'm available any day of the week for one of those all-you-can-eat breakfast buffets. So, on Sunday, Johnson appeared in front of Ma and proceeded to bumble and bluster over everything, mainly trying to insist that he wasn't responsible for the last nine years of Conservative government, as he'd only been in office for 128 days. I mean, listen Boris, if you feel that uncomfortable about what the Tories did, and you're trying to distance yourself from them that much, maybe you should vote Labour. Instead, though, Johnson blamed everything on the last Labour government from a decade ago, while bemoaning that people keep bringing up bits and pieces he did in the past, with zero awareness of the contradiction. At one point he said he loved libraries, probably because it amazes him to be around so many streams of words that actually have a spine, and then he blamed councils for shutting them, as though completely unaware of what the government actually funds. He could really do with looking it up, of course, if only there were the places with the resources to read up on it. Oh well. I mean, it does seem at this stage of the election that actually Boris Johnson's greater skill is making us all realise that his predecessor and former Prime Minister was actually far more coherent and personable than we thought. In other news, but also the same news, there were two other debates that had some leaders, but not all leaders, and I could tell you about them, but honestly, I don't know if you'd gain anything from it. I'm certain that Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and man who looks like he's modelled his entire life on looking like a stock photo of someone who just passed their BTEC, Rishi Sunak, was only there to represent the Conservatives, and Shadow Secretary for Justice and gormless Easter Island head-on-legs, Richard Burgeon, was only there for Labour so that campaigners in their areas could get a break from them. The YouGov MRP results came out last week, predicting a Conservative lead with 359 seats and Labour down to 211, with Lib Dems on 43 and the Brexit party gaining absolutely none. All of which is very depressing, considering that if that is the case, the next five years may prove the last three to have been the good times. Ugh. But polls have already started changing with Labour gaining, the Tories staying where they are and the Lib Dems losing. So all I'm saying is, with two weeks to go, is that something in your pocket, Mr General Election, or are you looking well hung? And this week, US President What Happens If You Encase a Wind Tunnel Inside Orange Play-Doh, Donald Trump, is visiting the UK. But Johnson has been advised to avoid him while he's here. Maybe he'll send his dad instead. Oh, and UKIP. Yeah, they're still there. Who knew? We thought they'd all gone back to where they came from. But they've now got a new leader whose name is Pat Mountain, which is a very long way of saying heaps of bullshit. Their manifesto was unveiled today and is titled Brexit and Beyond, which works as if they were a cartoon character. They'd definitely be no buzz shit year. Ah, how long will next week's intro be? Probably years, years and years. There has been too much happening in one week. Again, I left out loads. I left out loads. I left out all the Lib Dem email forgery. Uh, I've left out the SNP manifesto. Shout out to Scottish, Northern Irish and Welsh listeners who I've completely ignored. And I'm sorry, but you can't say I'm not on top of British politics when all the main parties and media are ignoring you too. (laughs) Let's laugh at how entire countries' views are ignored, but there's loads of focus on how the Prime Minister fills his pie hole with baked goods i Uh, I am terrified of the election results, but also hopeful because uh, I read an exhibition several months ago. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. Hope lies in uncertainty, which is why people had loads of hope in the past, because they knew fuck all. And now we know loads of stuff and we're mostly depressed. Bring back ignorance, I say. Um, Actually, don't. Uh, And I'm still not sure that ignorance is bliss, because if you were, say, ignorant walking into an area with falling rocks and then you got hit by one, you wouldn't be all that blissful. That'd be stupid. You should have looked at the sign. I was ignorant to how much sugar was in a milkshake this weekend and I didn't do enough insulin and that wasn't bliss. Uh, instead, it just meant I was pretty spaced out for an afternoon and I needed the loo loads. If anything, in that case, ignorance is piss. Uh, and that's why I'm not allowed to make novelty slogan mugs they're not very family friendly are you feeling christmassy yet it's hard with the election isn't it um though if it is a tory majority that will be quite festive in that they'll be returning the uk to a state that dickens would probably set a story in what's that tiny tim has been found fit for work and so on and so on we do now have our Christmas tree up, um, which is early, isn't it? But it's only because my parents kept our one from last year in their garden and looked after it, and then I'd forgotten about it, and now I'm going round boasting about how environmentally friendly I am. We've saved a tree. La-dee-da. Um, I'm certain, though, I put it too near the radiator. tab. Uh, my daughter will watch as her not-okay-not-boomer-dad single-handedly kills a tree through overheating the environment around it, and I feel like this is a horrible-scale vision of her future. Still, for now, she's mostly intent on tearing bits off of it, which makes me wonder if actually young people aren't the saviours of the planet. After all. Um, Thank you for coming back. I know this podcast is in another cycle of being out of date before it's even released, uh, but I appreciate that you still tune in to see what the past sounded like. Next week's will be the last pre-election one, so it might be shorter as there's not really a lot I can say or do that will last for more than two days. Um, And then I'll do one on December 17th, which hopefully won't just be me crying and swearing a lot. And why should it be different from all the normal episodes, Tiernan? Yeah, fair play. Uh, And then I'm going to hibernate till January, depending on how things go, because this guy needs a break. My whiskey and PlayStation aren't going to play and drink themselves. Well, not in that order. Anyway, I don't think I could drink a PlayStation. It'd be really unpleasant. Um, I mean, it's unlikely I'll get to do those things anyway, because parenting, but even having time to think I might do those things sort of counts. So, as per usual, um, if you enjoyed the show and you can recommend it to someone before it takes a wee break, please do. Uh, If you can review the show, that'd be even better on your Apple Podcasts or Podbean or wherever else a review might find a home for Christmas. Christmas, though bear in mind it is also for life. And if you have extra pounds or pennies, uh, while you might want to save them for the megatory no-deal nightmare-scape scenario, you could also buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash parpaulbro, or patreon.com forward slash parpaulbro. I'm still trying to work out if it's coffee or whiskey to get me through election night, and I'm thinking it may have to be both, uh, followed by Gaviscon and Sadness, which would be an interesting combination. Um, As you heard at the top of the show, uh, this week's show is sponsored by Next Up Comedy, who are not only proper good people so we very much support comedians in the best of ways uh, their website is also actually very good with so many good comedians and comedy specials on there it is worth a look-see um, and my last three shows too which are now uh, quite out of date but sadly also not because very little has changed um, do check it out at nextupcomedy.com forward slash is great and no seriously they did that URL not me um, and you'll get a free month subscription and I believe one person will win a free year subscription too which is nice isn't it very nice um, also a quick plug this week as I start all the Frankie Boys support slots but if you can't get to those as they're all sold out so you can't um i'm hosting the comedy club at farnham maltings this friday which will be very interesting based on my current election material and um, i like farnham maltings it is normally an audience full of gilets lovely audience all gilets and then I'm on a lovely bill at the in Canterbury on Saturday on a night called Exploding Dream Cabaret which sounds really good uh, doesn't it it's got Matthew Crosby and Tom Parry from Pappy's going to be on as well and the wonderful Earl Oaken it's a lovely bill I've popped a link in the pod blurb please come along Um, and lastly admin wise I may have won too many pre-election interviews Uh, maybe hopefully I've got an interview this week which will be uh, really important so if that happens and then depending on how it goes I might have to release one as as a bonus episode before next week. Good idea, bad idea, too much me in your ears? Um, Let me know, or say nothing, which I will consider based on recent political happenings to mean approval. Okay, on this week's show, I'm speaking to Guy Taylor at Global Justice Now, all about them 451 pages of NHS sell-off documents, plus a mini-look at the prison system and how everyone has got it all wrong over Friday's terror attack. I mean, not everyone, just the party. There are lots of sensible people that got it right, and I've just nicked all their thoughts because I haven't got a clue. Thanks, them. Last week, one of the big stories about the election, in amongst all the other big stories, was Labour revealing they had 451 pages of uncensored documents showing that government ministers had had talks with US officials that put the NHS on the table. You know, that big table that now has all the Brexit deals, coalition possibilities, and so much on it that frankly I'd just suggest eating out or getting takeaways, that'd be a lot easier. The document showed the details of six meetings between 2017 to July of this year with US officials and UK civil servants and at one point former International Trade Secretary disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox, the Disgrace. Which I suppose could favour the government as if they actually wanted to make any progress in these talks, the last thing they'd do is send the man who spent two years persuading the Faroe Islands to keep trading with us post-Brexit. Great news everyone, it's lava rock and cold sparseness sandwiches all round. These documents say all would be to play for in a US-UK deal, which is very scary from a country whose World Series sports games only include themselves. Labour say all of this would lead to NHS privatisation and the cost of drugs increasing. For the NHS, that is, uh, not just on the street corner, as demand thousandfolds as where everyone needs something to pick us up if it's a Tory majority. The Conservatives retorted by saying the meetings were just preliminary sessions to get an understanding of what each country's trading policies and regulations are, which, if that's true, that doesn't need six meetings, does it? I mean, all they had to do was try some US E-number filled cereal and see how long they think they can fly for, while US officials chomp shreddies and feel sad inside while needing to shit slightly more. But is it all as simple as that? Are we looking at the NHS being bought by Disney, which means you get lots of unnecessary follow-up treatments that feel a lot like the first one and ultimately fall short of doing anything for you? And what exactly is on the 451st page? Well, this week I went to spend the afternoon with the excellent Guy Taylor, who is the campaigns and activism manager at Global Justice Now, a group that campaigned against injustice in a number of sectors, including trade, and have been warning of the issues of a post-Brexit UK trade deal with the US for quite some time. They'd been pivotal in getting those 451 pages revealed to the world. And I got to ask Guy all about what the documents actually mean, remembering T-tip and whether a cl- and whether chlorinated chicken is worse than chicken that's been in one of those natural swimming pools where all the wee just gathers instead. OK, I didn't ask him the last one, but we did mention the chickens. And I hope you find this chat as interesting as I did. Here's Guy. So this was the perfect week to come and see you. Seems that way, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, now, I suppose for the listeners, I mean, we know that there's a lot of these documents have come out, so 451 pages, that's what I've heard lots of times, 451 pages about how the UK government, you know, is, is planning to trade parts of the NHS off. Um, is that is that the, the gist of it? Is there more to it? What, what do we need to know about it? What
1: should we know about it? Basically, we've been campaigning on trade for years now. We did, we did a big campaign against TTIP and what have you, and then when uh, TTIP failed and we were looking at Brexit, we were looking at trying to democratise trade and get more accountability uh, on trade deals. And uh, and the Tory government went ahead to start negotiating a trade deal with the US. So um, we put in a Freedom of Information Act request uh, over a year ago to try and get a picture of what was happening. And, uh, and that, that's when they sent us all these reams of redacted, and literally these, these papers were 90% black lines. Wow. I mean, it, was just, it was just astonishing. It was, it was, um, you'd have the title on some, some bits, and there'd be some of the attendees of the meetings, but not all of them. And on some pages they even redacted the page number. I mean, like, that was how thick they were with the black marker pen. So we've had that for a while. Um, but then, when it came to the question... Of a trade deal with the, with the US and over this election we were quite happy to make our uh, documents available to whoever wanted them, uh, in this case Mr. J. Corbyn and uh, yeah so he found it a very uh, meaningful way of demonstrating the secrecy in which uh, people uh, of the, the, the government and their, um, and their representatives have, uh, have carried on these trade negotiations with the US so that's what they are um, we've had it a while and um, and basically, we we we, let, well, we, we said that the uh, Labour Party could use them for um, for their own purposes, and uh, it's created a huge furor, which I have to admit we're delighted about. And in theory, what what could it mean for the NHS?
0: Is it that, that US businesses would buy? Is it that the US government would buy? Is it just because I read that it might cause medicine prices to go up? What what are the kind of effects, or, or what are we looking at
1: potentially? Well. It doesn't say in the document we have to sell the NHS. What it does, it talks about services. It talks about services which uh, must be available for competition, for tender, for all the rest of it. So, I mean, basically, there is a demand there um, that you know markets must rule, and that's in our that's in our state-run you know, services. Um, when we were doing TTIP, it was quite interesting because to, if you wanted to exempt any service from a trade deal, you have to list it. You have to say at the beginning of the document that it's not painting, it, you can't do this. And in TTIP, the French government actually put on their audiovisual services. So basically TV and radio, they said, because they've got a big thing about protecting French language and they've got rules like, um, I think it's you know every... Every other song has to be on the French radio; has to be in French language to protect their language, rather than just have a uh, a, a blanket coverage of uh, US and UK um, records being played or whatever. So you know they they use that get out. And in these documents, now we've seen them, there's no get out for the NHS. So when when the Tories claim that we're not, it doesn't talk about the NHS. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to. It doesn't say it's not counted. It's about they haven't made it exempt. It means that it's part of it. Sure. Yeah. So a trade deal nowadays um, has got a number of elements of concern for the NHS. Firstly, it makes privatisation much more attractive. So it protects anything that's been privatised is normally protected from renationalisation. So if an American corporation invests in the, say it's privatised Say it's, and we, we're doing this anyway we, we, we all know the NHS is being privatised bit by bit at the moment and it means that if an American pharmaceutical company buys an interest in one part of the NHS it will be able to sue the British government a future government perhaps maybe a Labour one or whatever um, it will be able to sue that government for lost future profits if it's renationalised so maybe. it makes is a kind of ratchet. You can't you can't uh, un, things. So basically, yeah, it's uh, it's that that's that's the first part of what we're worried about. Sure. Secondly, there's all this intellectual property rights stuff, which says that patents on things um, get get more protection and maybe elongated. So the price we're paying for American produced drugs is going to be. Higher because that would be, able to, and, and Trump has made this very clear. You know, he's furious about the NHS being a big, because it's such a big purchaser of drugs. It's much bigger than any healthcare system in, in, in the US, even. So it's got more muscle when it comes to negotiating prices. So we do get a, a better deal than, than America. So basically, we pay less for our drugs than America because America hasn't got a national system. Uh, so trump's furious about this and he wants he wants more of a level playing field, so we're going to have to pay more that's that's a declared intention of uh of donald trump over this stuff and uh so basically and and so we've got the the right to sue and higher drug prices and a more attractive um role for privatization and things so that's a that's a huge worry and uh that's it, you put those three elements together and it's a disaster for the NHS yeah it's
0: really terrifying
1: yeah. and a uh, bit Because I I remember that
0: that Global Justice now, you've been campaigning for for a good couple of years on potential deals with Trump post-Brexit. Yeah. It's
1: it's not just the NHS that's a a scary element of a trade deal with the US, is it? Oh, completely. Absolutely. I mean, this is... I mean, we've got a a reputation on on protests of dressing up as chickens, um, which uh, I think some members of staff are getting quite keen on this now, which (laughs) is a bit of a worry. But basically... We've got about 20 chicken outfits, and we do that. And we have a uh, we have dancing chickens on protest because we're trying to highlight chlorinated chicken. And chlorinated chicken is again uh, it's a bit misunderstood because uh, whenever I tweet about uh, chlorinated chicken, I get there's always someone comes. Over and goes, I hope you didn't wash your chicken suits in chlorinated water like you get out of the taps in Britain. It's not about the chlorine, we don't give a damn about the chlorine. You can have a little bit of chlorine on your lettuce or your or your chickens. I don't eat chickens anyway, so it doesn't really bother me at all. Basically, chlorinated chicken is chlorinated because of the filthy conditions it's bred and reared and killed in. And uh there was a dispatches program on Channel 4 about four or five months ago, which showed the conditions in a in a chicken factory in, in, in the US. You read any book about the meat packing uh, industry in the US it's not got the same standards as here. And basically, that's what it's all about. It's about really poor animal welfare, animal hygiene and hygiene standards. And there was a report in Southampton University which said, uh, basically, yeah, it's not that effective. You know, you look at the deaths from Salmonella, uh, much higher in in, in the US than almost non-existent in the UK. Uh, So basically, there is... They they have lower standards. It's a difference really between the EU, which operates on the precautionary principle. And that means that you've got to prove something is safe before you put it on the market. In the US, you can put anything on the market until someone proves it's dangerous. Which is seemingly comes out of the same, but it doesn't. Because basically they they depend on a litigious suing uh, kind of practice to keep to keep things safe, isn't that? the opposite, isn't there? the court system of guilty till proven innocent? Yeah. So food is innocent until proven guilty, yeah, yeah, exactly. the, but it people really, are. It really is, yeah. <laughs> and back in the day of TIP, I, I, I had to go to I had the owners of responsibility going to New York for one of the um, one of the TIP negotiating rounds, and we looked at other things. So it's not just food. I mean, like, there's loads of stuff on food because. You know, they're against um uh, excessive or what they think is excessive labeling of food so they they don't want anything to be labeled genetically modified they want they want no, no indication of things being genetically modified organisms or not so it's a level playing. They, they've got just as much chance of selling their stuff as as, as, as other stuff so that's uh, one thing there's also we looked at cosmetics and uh in the EU I think there's a list of Thing. I think it's a number I keep on forgetting, but I think it's 1,375 chemicals and compounds and various different things which are banned from use in cosmetics. And in the United States, there's a list as well. It's got 11 on it. Wow. It's quite a difference. And uh, basically, um, I went. I, I bought some mascara in a, in a, in a shop there and uh, I bought the mascara back and we found one uh, ingredient, which is only used in wart remover in the EU, but it's in mascara in the uh, in the US. So that's um, a little bit unsettling, I'd say. Not nice. So it, it, it impacts so many different things. Now the the pro f- trade agreement people in the Tories will, will say, look, you know, it's ridiculous. We've got two different uh, systems of regulation, which means that if if you produce clothes in the UK, you have to satisfy the European standards by, you know, perhaps setting fire to a dress or setting fire to a pair of socks or whatever. Then you've got to go through the same process to prove it by the American standards. And they're roughly the same. And I suppose they've got a point. But I'd rather have it checked twice than have it not checked at all or just rely on one other one of the two systems. Yeah. And it's just it's just a bit crazy. I mean like, you know, if if for us to get a trade deal with Trump, he's going to he's going to demand a price, yeah. And we are no longer a part of the biggest trading block in the world. We are just one nation, we're a rich nation, but we're down the pecking order big time. So we've got less muscle in this negotiation. And we've got a, a president in the United States who's saying, you know, my son, <coughs> he keeps on, he, he, he puts on this blonde wig and and, and, and does a voice saying, "We're going to put America first and it scares the He's much better at the, the accent than me, it's getting <laughs> senseless that's terrifying. And, uh, and uh yeah, so I mean like, he's he's he going to stand up for his business, and it is going to be America first, and we're going to come second in that, so we're got to be very concerned about this it. yeah, it's very concerning and just can we go back a little bit because you've yeah. mentioned TTIP
0: a lot, and can we just go over what TTIP was and right. what it was going to be yeah because it's a trend, trend transatlantic
1: trade and investment partnership that's it right no. And I think th- this was basically trade deals back in... When I was a kid, you watch the news, there'd, be, there'd normally be someone from Whitehall in a suit going out to some African country and signing a deal with normally a bloke dressed up in, uh, in, in admiral's uniform or, or high, you know, bom- uh, some high-ranking army bloke. And they'll be signing a thing and it'll all be for show and they'll be saying we're going to sell them £8 million worth of missiles or something like that and that would be a trade deal. But now it's a trade and investment partnership, and that's really significant because it's the investment bit, which is a key bit of it. Nowadays, with most countries, we don't have very high tariffs. We don't have a lot of trade barriers. It's the investment part we've got to be really, really careful of. And that's mostly down to this thing called ISDS, which is the investment trade, the investment You're going to have to edit that. I've got a fuck up on that one. (laughs) ISDS is the Investor State Dispute Settlement uh, Mechanism, which basically means if someone or an entity has invested in the other country, their investment is going to be essentially underwritten. they, they, They can be sure of their future profits. And... If that works, I mean it's it's a parallel system to, um, and we know for a fact from these documents that it is in the US UK trade deal. And basically, the UK the UK has got a lot of trade uh, trade deals with ISDS in, with ninety six, I think it is, but most of our trade deals are with poor countries, mostly the global south, but also Eastern Europe, um, Asia, and places. And there's not that many really powerful, rich countries we've got trade deals with, i.e. So the first ones that um, the Tories want to do, America, New Zealand, Australia, Israel, we, um, they want to continue the one with, uh, which has just been signed or is in the process of being ratified between the Canada and, and, and the EU. So anyway, now I've, I've veered hopelessly off the point. What is T tip. <laughs> Is a is a, is, is a was a mega trade deal between the US and the EU, and uh, it, they were negotiating it for about seven years and it failed um, because there was a massive campaign against it, especially in Europe but also in the US. And uh, it was, uh, I suppose it's it's typically portrayed as something between the EU and the US. Basically, what a trade deal is nowadays is it is a it's a declaration of corporate Interests over ordinary people's interests. That's, that's how we really should look at these things. Mm. It's not two countries or two trading blocks against each other, it's a corporate world, both sides of the divide, getting their way over everyone else. And that's what TTIP was. Check election threat. 2019 is complet. Listen to me, to the yeah, that's election threat. election threat. election, threat. Yeah, that's
0: election, yeah, that's election uh. Every day of the past week, I've been trying to figure out what to do this bit about. Uh, should I do it about racism in the different parties? That is very important. I might be interviewing someone about it later this week. Oh, no, wait. Um, how about climate issues? That's the story now. Oh, no, wait. How about how a twat eats a scone? But sadly, with Friday's terror incident and the incredible lack of facts going around to do with it, I thought it'd be best for a comedy politics podcast to focus on the worst, least funny incident this election. Hmm. Well, maybe this is why the show is never in the Apple Podcast Top 10. But don't worry, I promise, it'll only be a few short sentences. So, according to the Home Secretary, and only person to live entirely on the tears of children, Pretty Patel, Usman Khan, the man that killed two people on Friday and attacked several others, was automatically released halfway through his sentence due to a law change that Jeremy Corbyn's party brought in in 2008. Aside from the fact that if this was true, the Conservatives have had nine years to change that law, otherwise I guess you could kind of presume that they were fans of it, it is, unsurprisingly, not true. Well, sort of. Before 2008, there was a sentence called an EPP. Yeah, you know me. Extended sentences for public protection, which were life sentences given to criminals that were deemed particularly dangerous. Halfway through that sentence, the prisoner would go in front of a parole board and they'd be released on licence, aka parole, if they were no longer seen as a threat to the public. But due to prison overcrowding, a lack of support for rehabilitation and far too many prisoners getting EPPs, in 2008 the law was changed so it'd be an automatic release at the halfway point though still on license and so they can be recalled to prison at any time during the remainder of their sentence. But in 2012, the European Court of Human Rights said the lack of being able to provide rehabilitation programmes for prisoners was unlawful, and EPPs were changed to Extended Determined Sentences, or EDs, where prisoners would get automatically reached two-thirds of the way through their sentence if given less than 10 years or put in front of a parole board at that time if more than 10 years. Got it? So automatic release if you've done bad, but not too bad. Not automatic release if you've done or oh, really bad. Then in 2015, that all changed, so now all prisoners require parole board approval regardless. Like this sort of X-Factor panel, but for crime. Sort of. Except in Khan's case, he was sentenced in 2012 under the coalition government and given a DPP sentence, or a Dangerous Offender to Detention for Public Protection, which actually should be Do DPP, but that would be... Doc- Anyway, um, because his crime, which I won't go into now because you've got lives, was deemed dangerous but not serious enough for a life sentence. The judge for his case decided 16 years was the appropriate sentence, and so the minimum term of that was 8 years, but then it went to the Court of Appeal, who, long story short, decided an old type of ed sentence would be the best, which means he served 8 years and would have been on licence for another 8 plus another 5, which, because I've done maths, I can tell you is 13. To summarise, there's a whole heap of changes that have happened in the court system since 2008 and it's not particularly one government or the other's fault that this happened and instead it was a decision by the Court of Appeal based on their best judgement that very sadly turned out to be incorrect. But really, the blame on what happened on Friday might be laid on all the cuts to prison and probation services which in a report released in April were said to be in an enduring crisis with a doubling of the prison population in the last 25 years but also staff shortages and a rise in drugs and self-harming institutions. Rory Stewart, yeah, remember him, like if a horse was shocked unexpectedly, and seems to think he's best placed to run for London Mayor now on account of not being likeable or from London. Well, when he was Prisons Minister in the last government, he promised to resign within a year if conditions in 10 prisons around the country hadn't improved with a £10 million cash injection. And those 10 did improve, with a 16% drop in the rate of assaults, and a 17% drop in number of assaults, and 50% reduction in positive drugs tests. But that was just 10 prisons out of 150. And even if a prison had been slightly improved, the life a prisoner might have once released on licence was bleak, thanks to probation services that were reformed by Chris Grayling. Yeah, remember him? The man who looks like an egg from a nightmare, the one who is like a shit-based King Midas with everything he touched. Grayling's reform programme outsourced probation services to eight different providers who, as then private companies tend to do, cut costs, laid off staff and didn't supervise things properly at all, leading to a serious crimes on parole rising by 50%. Leading to serious crimes on parole rising by 50%. So all in all, it's highly likely that someone like Khan didn't actually get much rehabilitation treatment during his sentence at all. So the Conservatives are now pledging that no terrorist sentence with imprisonment will get an automatic early release, which they wouldn't anyway, and nothing they've suggested in their manifesto is any different to how it actually is now. Instead, they just said it louder and on TV and in papers. But it's there. If you look at the law, it's actually all there. Instead, the Conservatives have pledged to make 10,000 more prison places, although some of those are part of an expansion of HMP Full Sutton in Yorkshire, which had planned extensions since 2016 and still hasn't happened. They also said they'd spend £100 million on prison security, plus recruit more prison staff, which is good, but part of the problem is not just the lack of staff, but lack of experienced staff, with figures in June saying the prison system has lost 80,000 years of experience since 2010. That's like 88.8 yodas. There is a teeny paragraph in the Conservatives' manifesto about rehabilitation and creating a prisoner education service focused on work-based training and skills and getting prisoners a job coach, but I couldn't find any costing, so it could just be that someone gets minimum wage on a zero-hours contract to tell prisoners how to deal with being on a minimum wage on a zero-hours contract. So, that's not all the detail, that was very brief and uh, not very funny. Sorry, it's not really. And you can imagine there's lots and lots to this, just none of it is being said by the Conservatives, or to be fair, not all of it is being said by the other parties either. It is ridiculous that for an argument about longer sentences, this election is showing how little time many politicians spend on theirs. If you head to the website and listen back to the interviews with Emma McClure on episode 37 and 157 of this podcast, she talks all about the effects of cuts to the prison system on there with far more clarity uh, and intelligence than I do have a listen. And now back to Guy. And because I remember one of the arguments or sort of the left wing argument for Brexit was we've got to get out of the EU before they go through a T-tip but now that we're brexiting it looks like we're getting a worse or a more severe kind of deal with the US so is were we safer in the EU against those sorts of things or is it is it safer i mean what you know yeah.
1: what's the right i, th- I think actually, level? actually we were safer in the EU because there's more scrutiny now if if a trade deal is agreed by the trade the, the department for international trade here or the whoever's uh, doing it for for the tories if if Liz trust God help us um, <laughs> agrees a trade deal with anyone in the world she brings it back it's negotiated by her civil servants so so it's slightly less dangerous but it's under her auspices so it's very dangerous anyway if that trade deal is agreed it's brought back to the British Parliament and to get it ratified, to get it rubber stamped by Parliament, she has to lay it before Parliament, which I don't know exactly how she lays it, but basically it makes it available to, to MPs to read. If there is not a negative resolution laid uh, raised against it, it passes into law within twenty one days. That's it. Wow. There's no debate. There's no vote. There's nothing. It's just like done. Um, to raise a negative resolution, uh, we, we were struggling to find out how to do it because it hasn't been done before. Really? Mm. Not that happen. we can find. Not against a treaty, not against an international treaty. So we don't know the mechanism. We don't actually know if a backbencher could table a resolution and it gets debated, or it has to be on an opposition day debate, or all these things. We don't know how it happens. And if it was to be passed a negative resolution, this trust would have to take away her trade deal and represent it to relay it before Parliament with a bit more of an explanation why she wants it passed. And then if there's no negative resolution within 21 days it passes into law. So to, to stop a trade deal in the UK, you have to have a monthly vote against it. And we don't know the mechanism for that for, for, for that monthly vote. So that's how democratic we are. At least in the EU, it has to go for the council, has to go for the commission. It has a has a vote on the floor of the, the European Parliament. So there is more chances, mm. not very big, I admit, but um, you know there, there is more scrutiny and there is more democracy at the European level, which is crazy.
0: And I guess also they've got the weight of that many countries. You know,
1: when it yeah, comes yeah. to sort of bids so, and demanding, and, the, and, and CETA, the CETA was the there was a you. EU Canada deal, which is going through at the same time as TTIP, and that actually got through. It got through in Europe, but because it had the the uh, the, the legal mechanism for corporations to sue to sue countries, it had to it had to then get ratified by every individual country. Obviously, in the UK, it would just go from nod uh, in Belgium and Italy and places like that. They a lot more scrutiny, and they could actually bring it down. So. CETA got uh, ratified by, by the EU in, I think it was 2017, and most of it has now been implemented, but the legal stuff has not been implemented yet because it still hasn't been ratified by every country. So you can see there's a, there's a break on it there. There's no breaks, there's no there's no accountability, there's no power for MPs even, even to know what's going on in negotiations there alone, put a stop to it. So... Yeah, we 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 have no democracy over trade deals here, none whatsoever. That's really scary. That's yeah. really really scary. And
0: apart from obviously, you know, horrific food and and e numbers and things, it, it it affects workers' rights. I am guessing as well. If it's trading it involves the workers and the people that will be working in these industries, mm. so is one of the big things of Brexit was they can get rid of all these regulations and all this red tape. And I am guessing that doesn't just mean that you can get. So not very nice chicken, it also has effects yeah. on, on all the other elements of the, the kind of industry sector.
1: Yeah, and I think, you, you look what's going to happen. Okay, for example, let's, let's take beef. Right, that's a great subject for two vegetarians to talk about. <laughs> but basically, beef is, is hormone-grown. They, they inject their, their their beef cattle with hormones, with the stuff that's not allowed in the EU. And They do on a massive scale and there's a huge economy of scale, and they've they they've got this. It's almost like playing a, a football team just using steroids and and, and and performance enhancing drugs. You're not on a level playing playing field. So base and and they've got these huge economies of scale. So our farmers are going to get completely out. Played by these by the by the US because it's not not a level playing field and the only way our farmers are going to be able to get to that you know to get to get to compete is by using the same stuff and likewise if we're producing cars or if we're producing you know providing services if American workers I've got a friend who's just moved back from the states after working there um, in, in LA and. I think it's 10 days a year holiday there
0: yeah it's really minimal isn't it very really minimal
1: and there's very few there's is there any bank holidays apart from Thanksgiving and Christmas day I mean like you know they work mm-hmm. and all the all the rights and the, and the and the uh and and the securities that we've won here will be under threat if we have to compete with with, with that like uh, so directly so um i think yeah we have to be very wary about that and uh also to have american companies running our stuff over here they'll want to import their American customs and practice and pay and all the rest of it so it's, it's every, every you know, in every angle you look at it it's it's bad news and if you know it's predicted
0: a conservative majority at the moment how <laughs> how do we I think oh god um, how do you campaign against something like that if there's a majority government that's just going to pass these things through like what what uh, can people do? Or, you know, just preparing for the worst here, what would be the advice that you give people to kind of try and stop this happening if this is where things are heading? Well, we, we,
1: we campaigned against the Cameron government, which obviously was in charge with, the, with their uh, Liberal Democrat sidekicks at the time. And we, and we were united with people across Europe, which was quite useful. But we, we did actually have an impact in the UK. And we have to make things absolutely unacceptable, and we have to express that really well. And one of the, one of the key things about the TTIP campaign was we had this uh, European Citizens Initiative, which was like one of those parliamentary petitions, but across Europe. So you've got to get a million people sign it, you've got to get um, X number, you've got to uh, pass a certain threshold in each country. We had half a million people sign it in the UK, which is great, because you ask anyone what TTIP stand up stand for now, and... They won't be able to tell you. Well, I can barely remember myself. But I mean, like, um, that's that. That was the power of it. We 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 managed to turn a lot of faith, uh, heads against it, and that was reflected. And you know, they 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 got very defensive about TTIP and they didn't go, Oh, it's going to be the salvation of our economy or whatever." So we, we we'll have to do the same. And it's been quite interesting because in the 1990s, you had uh, this thing, um, the Multilateral Agreement on Investment, which was. A kind of similar uh, plan to, uh, to to some of the some of the provisions of the TTIP, and then you had the World Trade Organization you came to a standstill. Actually, um, twenty years ago, almost to the day to this recording, because uh, it was the Seattle Process, right? Um, and that stalled, and then they went for TTIP, which was this, you know. Um, the two previous things were the global south governments and civil society, society here ganging up against it and defeating it. Then they said, "Right, we just have this thing between Europe and the US, and we'll carve out the global south, and we beat that." And now it's, it's narrowing down to the US and us. So we're on this ever decreasing little uh, group of people um, uh, opposing it. But because we've won it before, and because we have that knowledge, and we we have that um, we have that. Um, experience of the whole thing, I think there is chances of us winning. Despite how many toys uh, win, I don't think they're going to win that much, really. So um, I I think we can definitely defeat it. And there must be opposition from British sort of produce
0: people. You know, British farmers and and people like that must be... Isn't there kind of anger about this from from their side of things if they're going to have to change their industry in the way that they work?
1: Yeah, I think... I mean, most British farmers, apparently... Uh, reportedly, voted for Brexit, which wasn't a very bright thing for them to do, um, especially with all those lovely subsidies coming out of the EU. <coughs> and I think they've, I think the British farmers have uh, come round to a view where it's not, it's not the best idea. So I think there is a case for small businesses, especially. I mean, I, when I talk about the right of corporations or, or investors to sue the government. The the average cost of one of those cases is £8 million. This is not for your small, medium-sized enterprise. This is for Serco and G4S and people like that to exploit and the big, extractive firms and what have you. Um, When it comes to small producers, medium producers, uh, or service providers, yeah, it's it's, it's not for them. And uh, it can be pointed out that, that, you know, I think the... The pool of people we, we can build in some coalition against it is quite broad and quite wide and uh, just have to talk to people we don't know who we talk to.
0: it, it does feel weird and this you know the, the big thing recently has been local produce and supporting your local businesses yeah, yeah. and and the and the pushes for uh, especially when I think you know originally the conservatives were the people that wanted to conserve that was where the name came from was you know wanted to conserve the environment oh, and and it feels like this is the exact opposite of yeah. everything that originally stood for us.
1: Well, the the thing is that when when Johnson talks about oh we got to we got to be exporters we have got to be dynamic on the world stage and what have you, you know, it it really doesn't address the the question of how big the U.S. is and how small we are, and when when you look at it in those terms you think actually we're, we we stepping into a very dangerous world here, and the American and Canadian uh, corporations are some of the most litigious in the world, and they have sued, I mean. But there's been a there's been a trade deal between the u s Canada and Mexico. It used to be called NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got renegotiated and, and, and redone It's now it's called know, mexico u s can some some acronym of the three names anyway. but because of that trade deal, the Canada is the most sued developed developed country in the world. It's the most sued, and it has been sued ridiculously by American corporations. And some of them, I mean, we know Eli Lilly a pharmaceutical company. They have sued Canada and uh, they've been uh, Canada has been sued for a moratorium on fracking. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, they've been sued for um, banning uh, carcinogenic fuel additive in, 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 in petrol and diesel. They've been sued for all these things and they've been sued for not allowing um, a an area of outstanding natural beauty which is used for whale watching they've been sued because there was a company wanting to build a wharf there for ex, ex, uh, exploring bauxite or like that. so i mean like you know those type of things go on in canada and if we sign a deal with the us that's what we should expect here and to give probably the obvious question we get sued
0: that money comes out of the public coffers does it and
1: at people's from, tax money, and yeah. then
0: it gets cut from something else as a result. Oh, completely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, one last question, which is just that I ask everyone on this podcast is it, apart from Global Justice Now, which all listeners need to follow and and uh, and check out website and everything that you do, um, what other campaigns do you work closely with? Who else would you recommend listeners check out on issues of trade? Have you got people that you go to?
1: Yeah, we. Um, yeah, we we work with uh, organizations like World Want with We Own It, uh, been doing, uh, we keep our NHS public, they've been doing some fantastic work on, on the NHS uh, angle on this. Uh, a lot of the trade unions are very very uh, concerned and active on, on, on this, like United Unison, and the GMB, the National Education Union, they, they, they do stuff on trade. Uh, and then there's the Fair Trade Foundation and people like that, and uh, other NGOs, Include, um especially the environmental ones because of the environmental aspect impact of uh, trade deals. <laughs> There's one, one thing that really hit me uh, uh, in the in the TTIP. I know I keep going on about TTIP, but there was a lot of documentation about that. But basically, one of the big predictions for TTIP was that car exports from the EU to the US were going to hit 40 billion uh, euros or like, US dollars per year. And then it said... And car exports from America are going to hit 39 billion US dollars or or euros a year. And and basically, I just got this mental image of ships taking bits of cars across (laughs) and passing each other and honking high. And uh, (laughs) and just uh, take it. And the environmental aspects of this is absolutely crackers. It just doesn't make any sense at all. And, you know, that is the way... Big corporations want, but normal people don't want that kind of thing. And you know, the Tories want to sell it. Oh, it's cheaper jeans and iPhones. Well, thanks a lot. Mate. I, I want more for my life than that, and I want a planet to live for my children to live on. So that's what um, we want to do. But yeah, there's been some brilliant uh, uh, environmental organisations working on it. Greenpeace did some brilliant stuff on their uh, on on um, on their T tip as well. So yeah. um there's lots. Just Google it. And, uh, yeah, we normally link to people from the Global Justice Now website.
0: Thanks so much to Guy for a lovely afternoon at Global Justice HQ in Oval. Um, they will likely be very busy this week with the Trump visit, so keep an eye on all their socials. Uh, you can, of course, find Global Justice now at globaljustice.org.uk or on Twitter at globaljusticeuk. And Guy can be found at Guido Tallman, G I G U I D O Tallman next week is election week and as I mentioned earlier I may have one too many interviews to put out before then so there's a chance I'll be releasing a bonus one keep an eye on your pod apps if that happens there also might not be who knows no one knows anything right now uh, then it's the post election mop up and then here's where you come in I'll be needing guests for next year who and what about no one knows yet but all suggestions are welcome so please get in touch with what and who you'd like to hear from and you can do that at the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk the parpolbro, twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or just send your dad and friend to pop over and tell me, and when two strange men appear at my door, I'll call the police. It's probably just easier to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for popping this in your ear sockets. And if you've enjoyed the sound that did flow into your brain, then why not have a think about and then have a do about, telling others to have a listen and subscribe to the show, giving Parpole Bro a tasty review on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or one of them places. Or maybe even donate to the Ko-Fi or Patreon pages. Thanks as ever to Acast, my brother-in-law Skeptic, whose new album, See You In The Next Life, is out now. And to Cat Day for scribbling up all the links for the website. And of course, to me dad, Brian, too. This will be back next week when the Prime Minister announces that a vote for him is actually a vote for his dad. At least on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays anyway, when he's going to be too busy eating scones. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Stanley Johnson's reboot of a classic, Pinocchio. The animated story of a bumbling stump of wood who doesn't at all want to be like those real boys as they disgust him. And after being mentored by a small odious slug and hiring all the donkeys on Pleasure Island to work as advisors, realises lying is really helpful in getting you what you want and he lives happily ever after regardless of what happens to him because he's rich. Stanley Johnson's Pinocchio, one for all of your many families if you have any idea where they are.